0: Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless, and without your light, our search is in vain. Invigorate our study of your holy word, that by due diligence and right discernment, we may establish ourselves and others in your holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, I can swing back around and talk about the Methodists here in a second, but before I forget, just a reminder, the new member... Uh, wine and cheese, which you should have received an email. I think Did you got e- email for wine and cheese. Uh, so calling it wine and cheese sounds so classy. Um, but there is technically cheese on pizza, so um, it is. It's wine. There's wine, and then there's cheese involved. Uh, but it's dinner. We get we get a local pizza joint and bring the kids if you got kids and bring the family out. Um, we'll we'll have all the leaders of the congregation there. Um, I've had some of them pop in sporadically. Like Dave and Sue Dumford were here this morning, very long-time members of Bethany, um, and so you have a chance to meet more people and find out more about Bethany that you don't maybe don't know already. Meet some more, meet some more folks. So uh, get that on your radar for November tenth, and that's a busy weekend for you because that's a Friday, uh, Friday night, six to eight, and then on Saturday we'll have our final class here. Well. All, I, right now, the schedule is pretty open. I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to have anything to talk about, but I, I seem to never run out of things to talk about. And then the next day will be the formal installation. For those of you who choose to join, um, the the rite of installation will be at the 11 o'clock service that day. Also, I had somebody ask me about, about giving. I, uh, I So I put back there a, a thing called Joyful Response. This is like the auto auto giving thing where you can sign up for how much you want to give and we'll take your money right out of your account for you don't even you don't even notice it's gone so jesus said money will be an idol and um we'd like to relieve you of that burden of the idol (laughs) some churches have that i'm very i I did my stewardship spiel in in church a, a bible study a couple weeks back but um different pastors take different approaches on on giving stuff and um I, my approach to when it comes to money is that I, I like to not be involved with it because I don't want to a go to prison I think that's a good goal in life um, but also I don't want to know what people give because it, I don't in my sinful flesh I don't want it to ever compromise or cause me to like change like oh I have limited time on a Friday who should I go visit today whoever who gives more money right so I don't wanna know, I don't wanna see it. Um, some pastors, and this isn't wrong, some pastors actually do want to be more involved in that. And it's because a lot of times we'll, you'll see, you'll see when, when, when there's like a family issue um, or there's anger against the church or some harboring some grudge, or there's some marriage problem, health problem, the first place where that's, where that's noticed is in the giving. So you'll have somebody who loses a job and they're too shame, ashamed to tell anybody about it. And so they just stop giving to church and they kind of stop coming to church or whatever. Um, so to be involved, you're able to kind of minister to people and, and offer help as the, as the congregation can. But I my approach is, look, everything that you have, here, here's, here's Pastor Clemmer's stewardship spiel. Ready? Uh, 10% has been the historic of like, how much how much uh, people should give to church, right? You probably heard that at some point in your life. That comes out of the Old Testament where you had an entire tribe of Israel that was forbidden to actually work the land. Everybody else go develop a farm, grow the corn, trade the corn or whatever crop, trade it, you know, develop your own wealth. Except for the tribe of Levi that was working in the temple. They couldn't work. So how are they gonna feed their families? Well, all the other tribes who have the luxury of not working in the temple, not committing their lives to the temple, are gonna give a tenth of what they have. A lot of it gets burned to a crisp, but a lot of it gets cooked to medium. Then you can eat that, right? And so that's what the pre, that's what a lot of the sacrifices would bring you out to the temple, sacrificed to God, but eaten by the priests. See how that kind of worked? In the New Testament, that's all, repre- that's all replaced. So there's not a there's no new testament mandate for giving at all so it's not that in the old testament it's 10 percent. in the new testament it's like less that god asks of you in the new testament it's actually all everything that you have belongs to god that's the christian approach is that my my body is not my own my time is not my own everything that i have is not my own my children this is a like great advice i give to parents your children aren't yours They've been handed to you for a time. God would like to have you change their diapers, feed them, clothe them, m- make sure that they learn about Jesus. And he will call them home when he's ready. So you, that's to, to the parents who are going, when their kids get sick and they stress about things. To, so he gave, you, he gave you this child in his time and he'll call the child home in his time. And in, in between you, you serve in the way that he's given you to serve. But in that way, all that I have is God's and, and there's not like a classification of holiness. That, that, so like the, the time you're, you're here now, thank you for being here. It's great of you. And so in your head, you might be thinking, well, I'm at church Saturday morning, and that's a, holy, that's a holier use of my time than uh, g- taking the kid to the apple orchard over in Oswego or whatever. Um, and, I, and I would encourage you not to think about it that way. Don't pit... One, one joyful thing against another. Rather, the Lord has given you the joy of hearing his word and learning his word now, and that's good. And it, it's holy. This is a holy thing because his word is sanctifying it and because you are holy. When you take your kids to the apple orchard in Oswego or whatever, that is also holy. Did not God create apples? did he give you the children and the family and the time or however you choose to spend your day as far insofar as you're not like overtly sinning this is a good and holy thing same with the money that we spend so how am i going to tell a a father and a husband that the money that you put in the offering plate is somehow holier than the money you spend on uh clothing and food for your children no, God gave you the children, and he wants you to put clothing and food on, on, in them, on them, right? So we don't want to pit them against one another. And that sets you free to say, okay, this is your church. It's your church. It will be when you join. This is your church. Um, how do you treat your church? So the, I try to, the mindset of the people here are like, you look around, and you see like the stain on the, on the carpet there in the middle. People are like, if there was a stain like that in your, in your living room, you'd be like, okay, it's time for a new carpet. This is embarrassing. So we have this, this ownership and a pride in our own facility. And we, we've been talking about getting it. The, the desire is there, the money's there. It's just a matter of what are you gonna pick and getting it to coordinate with the walls and the ceilings, but the mindset is, it's my church, we wanna take care of a church, but everybody's different. God is the one who's given us different gifts and abilities. Some people have time, but no money. Some people have money and no time. Some people have ability, and no time or no money, right? So it's just like, whatever the Lord has given you, jump in and plug in however you can and have fun. And that's a more, much more freeing approach. And that then creates, as Jesus, or as Paul would say, cheerful giving. That is not giving of, of my money ex- exclusively, but my time, my energy, my thoughts, um, my abilities. So whatever it is that God has given you, uh, you're, you, you're sharing that with the Lord and his church. And that's totally between you and, between you and him. Anyway, so uh, this, but this has become very popular and, um, in the congregation, especially during COVID, because we, we, we've done away with the offering plates altogether anyway. So a lot of times people forget to give offerings and they say, hey, is there a way to give online? Yes, this is the auto donation thing. You can also give through the church's website. Enough about money. Um, Today, I've I've liked, any questions on stewardship money stuff? Yes, ma'am. So after that whole spiel, that's, what, that's, what, that's the question. That's an easy one, Nancy. Uh, yeah, the 11 o'clock service on the 12th of November. Yeah, and if you can't make it, that's totally fine. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think most of you are probably communing already. So as far as communion at the rail is a different thing. Communion at the rail is saying, you're in fellowship with what we believe and teach. To join the congregation, uh, for one, you says, that I'm a part of this community, I am your, I'm your pastor. So I'm visiting you in the hospital. You, you have the right to be married and buried here. Um, jump on boards and serve, right? So there's that, there's that aspect to it. Um, but if you can't make it, you can still join. But, but what's happening is that you'll, you'll all come up to the front and stand around the rail after the sermon. And I ask you, st- we went over this in like the first or second class, I think, where I say, Basically, the creed. Do you believe this stuff about God? And you say, yes. And I say, "Uh, have you heard anything that you disagree with yet in the small catechism? And you say, no. Hey, now that you're joining the church, are you going to actually come to church? And you say, yes. And then I say, good enough. Go away. That's that's the abridged version of the installation, right? And and then we teach you the secret handshake. (laughs) Good. Anything else? Well, today we're going to jump back into the creed. We introduced the creeds uh, last, last week. And so if you grab that handout on your way in, lot to cover here with the, with the creeds. Um, I know I, I covered some of these. So just very briefly, some people would say, hey, I don't believe that we should have creeds. I, we should just have deeds. I want to confess my faith with my life. If someone says to you, I'm to, I don't believe in creeds, I don't want to get stuck up in doctrine and words. I want to like I want to live my faith. And then you can say to them, "Well, do you believe that?" And they say, "Well, yes, that's what I believe." Then that's your creed. Cuz creed simply means what your heading says, "I believe." Uh, so everyone has a creed. Even if you don't believe in God, your creed is, "I believe that there is no God." See? So the bigger question is not whether or not you have a creed, but what is your creed? And the creed is the statement of faith. And in the church, what, you, what unites us as Christians is we're saying we share in this distinct confession of who God is. You're free to believe whatever you want about God. That's fine. But when you do, you're cutting yourself off from historic Christianity. That's why the lines are drawn. Not so we're forcing some ideological view on people, but like saying, look, this is what the church is, this is what, the, according to the scriptures, this is what the church has always confessed about, who, who God is, how he, is, how he has um, revealed himself to us, how he works toward us to save us. And this is what we believe about God. So we all get together, we have this like mind of, of who God is and how, he's, how he saves us. Um, so the creeds will confess. Usually, it doesn't cover everything because the creeds were formed in, con- in opposition to false teaching that was occurring at the time. So the, specifically the Nicene Creed, we, so we'll we usually say the Apostles' Creed at a baptism and the congregation doesn't even say it. So unfortunately, the Apostles' Creed, especially in our context, uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, is read mostly by the pastor at a baptism. In fact, this coming Sunday, I get to baptize twin babies, three, three-month-old babies at the 11 o'clock service. And I'll say to the parents, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the parents will say, yes, I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin The Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed is a very, very primitive and basic confession of who God is. And that's associated with baptism. Um, then there's a the Nicene Creed's a bit more, a, a bit deeper and a bit more complex. Not crazy, but just a bit more complex. And historically, the Nicene Creed was always said in conjunction with receiving the Lord's Supper, trying t- so that giving opportunity for the Christian body, th- those who are present, giving even clearer confession about who Jesus is. Um, so we, since we have the Lord's Supper, every possible chance we can, um, we usually are saying the Nicene Creed. The, the, the small catechism is actually written along with the Apostles' Creed. Still the same basic ideas there. The Athanasian Creed is, is digging in even further about the relationship between all the different members of the Trinity, and then also um, the... The, the divinity of Jesus, like how he's true God and true man at the same time. Athanasian Creed is only said on Trinity Sunday, so if you if you haven't been to church on Trinity Sunday, which is usually somewhere in like mid May or late May, it's so the first Sunday after Pentecost Sunday. A lot of people are on vacation, so you miss it. But that's like it's a lot, it's that long creed that, that ends with unless you unless you believe unless you believe the holy the holy Catholic faith you're going to hell, which then raises a lot of questions for people. Like, wait a second. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? So I, I, try to, I try to address it in my sermons on Trinity Sunday, but the, the Catholic simply means the whole thing. And in fact, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed end with that. It should say the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. This way you believe. Catholic simply means the whole thing kata according to halos the whole it's a greek word and um but we associate catholic with roman catholicism and that's it's just not what the it's not the same thing so um the i don't want to say oh yeah so unless you believe the the faith then yeah we'd say the only way to heaven is through jesus and if you don't believe that jesus is who he says he is you don't believe in jesus so you should believe in jesus um, and then last, I jokingly put Sparkle Creed on there. So just in case some of you are curious about that, um, the Sparkle Creed made it through the, uh, uh, tour through the ELCA and, and all the church bodies that are in fellowship with the ELCA, Episcopalians, uh, Methodists, the Lib Presbyterians um, confess the Sparkle Creed, which is basically calling God a woman, calling Jesus all the woke terms. We have a diverse inclusion, including, equitous god like all the buzzwords of the day to make jesus woke and it's a non-christian creed it's just shameful so we don't we obviously don't confess that but i put it on there because it is a creed that a church gave their amen to and um b- by the way amen amen it comes from the greek well the creed teaches us or the uh, the small catechism teaches us one thing In John, you'll always see this. This is the Greek amen. And like in John, like every time Jesus talks, he starts by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, amen. So it's amen, amen, it means truly. Truly, true, true True dad, yes, sir. Uh, In the small catechism when we say amen means, yes, yes, it shall be so. Amen simply just means that, yes, I I agree with what you've said. So that's why there's the amen at the end of the creed. So when you've got got major church bodies in America that are confessing the Sparkle Creed, they're confessing a distinctively non-Christian creed. And this is problematic. And then they're giving their amen. So so for me, the existence of the creed wasn't surprising. The hardest thing was watching the YouTube video. If If you haven't seen it yet, YouTube, Sparkle Creed, and just try to... Try to keep control of yourself. I thought it was a joke. You're serious. Churches are saying it? Yeah. This is old oh. news. Where have you been, Louise? Well, <laughs> I do, well, I guess, yeah. I just Stay off of social way. media. It's better for us all anyway. But that's, yeah, that was, um, it's a shameful thing. But the, again, it wasn't, because when you've got like a, 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 woman, a lesbian woman pastor, Um, Which is already a departure from the biblical confession of what a pastor is supposed to be You've said that the Bible is not the God. It's not God's Word It's not inerrant or inspired and I get to interpret it however I see fit So already when you've got a woman dressed in pastor clothes, you know something's up Then they go on to say all these false things about God It just drives the nail further in the coffin that this is not the Christianity that that I am so you can't hold the Sparkle Creed and the Nicene Creed, for example, simultaneously. That's why the communion, and this is actually a big reason why we even bothered going through this class. Many of you are Lutheran already, in fact, maybe all of you are some, some, some form of Lutheran already. That doesn't, these days that doesn't mean anything because you can jump into Lutheranism from a church. There are church bodies, unfortunately, there are church is in the Missouri Synod that would be totally cool to Sparkle Creed, not many, but there are some. Now, fortunately, at the administrative level of the Missouri Synod, we are like we are lock solid. And um, but it still requires discernment. In the individual congregational level, there are there are there are weaknesses to be sure. So some churches, you can jump in to a church that's all but Southern Baptist or or Methodist today's liberal Episcopalian. You jump into Missouri Synod. Not even knowing what a Lutheran is, or why we worship the way we do, or why we are the way that we are, you jump in there, you transfer here without any kind of class, and then as soon as you join the church, all of a sudden you're qualified to be the chairman of the congregation. And let's pretend you're like you're really your go-getter personality. You like to get involved. You're a boisterous personality. Everybody likes you, and all. Next thing you know, I got a chairman of the congregation who's pushing for women's ordination. Or a different kind of worship, or why why do we baptize babies? Like these major th- issues. So I'm like, okay, I, I, we want to make sure that everybody is like on the same page with what we're about, right? Um, and and this is part of why we don't commune with these other church bodies. It's because when you commune in a church, you're saying I am, I'm I'm joining myself in fellowship to what they're teaching. So I'm, I'm, when I join myself to the altar, we call it altar and pulpit fellowship. So I don't, like the Catholics, for example, they, they have a lot of similar confessions about the, the, real, the bodily presence in the Lord's Supper. They believe different things about what it does for you, but the, the bodily presence is still there. But I'm not gonna commune in a Catholic Church because we disagree with how many more works I need to do in addition to Jesus and the existence of the Pope. Altogether, Like, so I'm not joining myself to that confession of who God is and how he reveals himself to us. So it's more than just what's going on in the meal. In fact, I'm talking more about that in Bible class on uh, tomorrow. So join us for Sunday Bible class as your schedule allows. We'll be talking about the Lord's Supper a little bit. All right. Any questions on the general? Oh, in the, so as God reveals himself to us in the scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and now we're going to jump into the, to the creed. So on the bottom of your handout there, the first article they you got a nice little evolutionary picture there for you. Um, God as Father, I believe in God the Father Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. So we get the gender of God. <laughs> At least how he identifies as masculine. His pronouns are he and his. <laughs> uh, but like, so but what's helpful here is for one, a lot of people might not have had a faithful father. So for some people to confess God as father is problematic. If my dad was a deadbeat or he abused mom or he left us. And so what we have to be clear about is what God is giving us in the office of father is, a, is, is to be a picture, a, 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 a reflection of what he is toward us. So when you think about it like that, it's not like, we, it's not like we come up with our idea of what a father should be. Taking care of the kids, loving the, loving the wife, like providing, protecting, and so forth. Uh, teaching the faith, leading and teaching the faith within the household. We, since, since we have this idea, which we've developed because of we've got this patriarchal society that we've developed, we're gonna then force that onto God and call him father. No, God is a father, and that we our whole understanding of what a father is comes from what he is toward us. This love, the self-sacrifice, the love toward the, for him toward the bride, um, taking care of those that he loves, providing for them and, and all that. We, in all of our fathers, In us as fathers, we see our sin and our failures to be adequate, remotely adequate reflections of who the God the Father is. But that doesn't change his fatherness. In fact, we look to him as a guide for what a father is to be. And then we obviously, in in our sin, we see that we fall short. But, so God has revealed himself as the father from which we understand what a father is. Maker of heaven and earth. So he has created all. And he created all, as Genesis 1 teaches. He, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it into being. Let there be, and there was. Um, so, he, so he creates with a word, which is this bizarre thing. So at, at creation, I'll put it to you as a question. Is God the Father eternal? That is, no beginning and no end. Yes. Is the Holy Spirit eternal? Is Jesus eternal? Really? Jesus has always been? Where was Jesus at creation? What word? So this is where it's, I mean, you're all right. Yeah, you're certainly right. Here, here's the, in, in Genesis one, we have God the Father who creates, God created. The, whole, the Spirit is hovering over the waters, at the face of the deep. Where's the sun? And so in the, when the Scriptures say, and when Jesus, or when God the Father says, let there be light, those words are the, you could say, the pre-incarnate Jesus. That doesn't make any sense at all from our experience, right? It's except for what we have in, in John that the word of God becomes flesh takes on flesh. But but that has us thinking totally differently about like what what is God's word? When we hear God's word spoken and read, when we when we hear God speak in the Old Testament, with like this, it is not just words about something, but it it is something that's doing something. It's bringing life, it's bringing forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> or can we not know? Well, that's the other problem. So, if he, so when, he for, when, when God forms Adam from the dust, you, we, we picture forming out of the dust in the same way that you and I would form something from the dust, which would be like using our hands and making yeah. little clay figurines, right? right? Um, and yet God, so Jesus is the, the physical manifestation of God. That is, God the Father, we always picture him like these mirrors, like or set window number two. Some old dude with a beard. There's no picture of God the Father in the Bible. When Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we picture God, we are to picture Jesus. But And yet, there was some bodily form of God prior to Jesus because he was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. He full. He made with his hands. He speaks with a voice. So we're like, this is a body that that we know of, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really talk about it. So, all things were made through. So, in Colossians, I believe it is that Jesus. I think he might even have the quote here. All things were made through him. Um. The first, uh one sixteen. All things were made him in the creed we say all things were made through him which is through him how does that work not by him but through Um, without him nothing was made that has been made so using the word of god god creates so god's is god the one who's actually the mouth behind the speaking the scriptures don't get into that it's just beyond our this is where this is the beauty of the creeds actually the creeds is, is there's a difference between confessing and understanding God has revealed himself to us in his word of who he is and how he wants to be known. Some of it's understandable, some is certainly not. And to we we just say back to God what he has said to us about himself. That's what confession means. In fact, our word confession In the Greek, can get it right. Uh, it's pronounced homo. <laughs> uh, these days we we know what that means. So homo means same. And logos means word. So confession, to give a confession, is to simply say the same thing. Um, so when we stand here for confession and absolution, confession, like... God says, you're a sinner. And I say, I'm a sinner. That's confess, I'm saying back to God what he has said to me. Same with the creed. Here's how I want to be known. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm doing, here's what the scriptures are, who who God is, what he's doing. And I just confess it back to God. Um, Which also a lot of times means I don't necessarily understand. So, good, good question. So God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, this is a big deal for me uh, as I see the things that our youth are struggling with because you're raised in a culture of the ideology of evolutionism, which, um, how to put this in an easy way. All right, you go, you go to Star of Rock, you see like a picture of a big, or you see a beautiful landscape. And then there is a plaque in front of you about like what you're looking at here and how many billions of years it took for this to develop. Now, behind that is this assumption of evolutionism, that this world has taken billions and billions of years to come to be. So it's just just assumed that there is this clear, unquestioned scientific foundation that we have evolved. I'm just going to ignore all that, stick my head in the sand, and blindly cling to creation over and against all the clear scientific evidence of evolution. And a lot of times, Christians find themselves in that, in that position where they've got like, yeah, I know that the science is pretty convincing. that evolution is necessarily true. Um, I'm going to hold on to that because I don't want to look like an idiot, but also I'm going to b- also blindly believe that God created and try, to, and try to reconcile these two contradictory ideas. You can have a lot of peace to know that there is, there is no evidence. I mean, evolutionism is for one it's necessarily unprovable because so it is it is science it is the claim of science if i say evolu- if you if i said categorize evolutionism you'd put it in the category of science science by definition is it can't it can't be you, there's no way to measure it how are you going to start from scratch again? And if you try to create a vacuum that, that is somehow empty of any kind of molecules and see if life emerges, you created the vacuum. That wasn't the original situation. You don't even know what the original situation was because you weren't here. See? So it's not science. It is an article of faith. It's this assumption that well we, we're just going to rule out the spiritual realm why because i can't see it science is only a way to measure that which can be sensed i can see it i can hear it i can smell it right something i can measure so it's not even it's not supposed to measure the spiritual realm and yet the scientific realm that's limited to the physical realm sorry science which is limited to the physical realm makes claims about the spiritual realm but it's not intended to even measure anything in the spiritual realm. Why is it making claims about it? It's like saying, like, my, my tape measure um, doesn't tell me how much I weigh. Therefore, I must not weigh anything. I Man, that's literally, that's, a, oh, I, I kinda like that. So just, just because my, measure, my measuring tool doesn't measure the thing, therefore the thing doesn't exist. No, it's just the wrong tool. Um, so that's one issue. Two is it, built into the doctrine of evolutionism. Is well, what? How, how do species evolve? Someone tell me. How do you, How do species evolve? What's the process? Any species? What takes place? It's it's, it's called something. Natural selection. Natural selection. Which is you've got two. You've got you've got a couple of uh, I don't know. T- tadpoles, something, some swimming molecule. And um, one has a longer tail than the other, and therefore it's able to swim faster, eat more, procreate more, and therefore the next generation has a little, little bit longer tail. And that's the idea. It has to be a genetic, genetic mutation that benefits the species immediately so that it can live. But it, built into the doctrine of evolutionism, it's not just that the fit survive, survival of the fittest. What's the converse of that? The death of the weak. It ne- evolutionism necessitates the death of the weak. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So when you raise your kids on evolutionism, why are we surprised when we end up with school shootings and uh, bullies is it, to be a bully is what we've been teaching them from the time that they could walk. Like, you, you destroy the weak. Why should we have any, we should have no problem with Hitler doing what he did. If they're strong enough, they should be able to survive on their own. Abortion makes total sense. Euthanasia, total sense. If somebody isn't providing, if they're not able to defend themselves, then they, should, they need to die for the good of the species. See? That's built into the doctrine of evolutionism. So it's a, it's a theology of death and also a theology of chaos. So we came from chaos, and we're in chaos, moving toward chaos. Why do we think depression is so rampant? There's no God. There's no order. I can't make sense of the situation that I'm in. I can't find peace. The only peace that I can find is some kind of psychological peace within myself to try to find some fortune cookie guidance in life so there's a there's an inverse relationship with if you look at the stats in the last 20 years of church attendance and um like uh, getting psychological help counseling even basic counseling services i mean there's nothing wrong with counseling services to be sure but very often people since they've they've departed from god as a foundation of their life they, they need a foundation and there's interest counseling, right? Um, again, counseling has a, a, a great, I, mean, I refer people all the time, but it's not a replacement for religion. And for many, unfortunately, it has. So that's the world that we live in is, is in direct contrast to a God who, who has created this world in a particular way, who has ordered things and then sin enters in and breaks it. Um, uh, second page there we'll flip down to C the Lord's gifts and ordering so God has set everything in a place and he ordered everything in a perfect way everything has its, has its place sin comes in when things are used out of the office for which it was intended so the apple on the all, God gave all the fruit on the trees in the garden of Eden to be eaten eat them that was their given use don't take the apples and throw them at one another. Eat them. Then there was the one tree, or there are two trees the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not for that purpose. So Luther actually says that the, the tree of the garden of tree and the knowledge of good and evil was the way that they would actually worship God by not eating from the tree. It's to hear God's word and do what he says, show obedience and love for him and trust in his word. So that tree was to not be eaten from, and they did it anyway. You go through any sin in your life, and you can see that there is an actual, there is a goodness behind the sin. That is, God ordered, well, here's a good example. There are those who are supposed to take life. Doctors. Um, no, am Sorry. I say tech life, there are those who are supposed to take hearts out of chests and put different hearts in and cut into bodies and do things, right? We want that to happen in good ordered way just to bring forth life. But if I go around with a scalpel chopping into people, that's a bit problematic. It's out of the order of things. Same with Military shooting guns versus some random guy trying to bring about order in his neighborhood with an M-16. But that's all post-fall. I mean, the entrance of death and pain. Even pre-fall, we have the God-ordered thing of things like marriage, the gift of sexuality. It, within, within marriage, this is a good gift. Outside of marriage, we have adultery. Personal property. God's given us all that we have. He didn't give it to you. He didn't give what you have to me. So if I try to take your stuff, then it becomes stealing. The, the stuff isn't the problem. The socialists think it is. The stuff's not the problem. The stuff is a gift. It only becomes a problem when I try to pull it out of its order. See? Uh, so God's placed everything in order and for us to see all that we have in this life as a gift from him. Uh, D, he created all things, visible and invisible. So we recognize the, the angelic realm, the demonic realm, heaven. Um, where is heaven, by the way? Which direction? Well, we think it's up. Why would we think it's up? There's biblical reason for it. Well, so, so at the baptism of Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. The, the voice speaks from the clouds Moses and the mountain of transfiguration also they go up when, and most importantly when Jesus ascends into heaven but like at what point I mean just imagine the disciples standing there watching him like we watch a balloon and eventually it's eventually it's out of sight as though the disciples <laughs> he's getting pretty small now it's not the idea, because heaven isn't, has no locality in our, in our dimension. Um, and that's, that'll blow your mind, but when you think about heaven as being outside of time and space, it's not just outside of earth looking in, but it's outside of our comprehension of this dimension at all, which is why, like at the mountain of transfiguration, um, I always like to say that Jesus unzips heaven and and Elijah and Moses step out and they're just there talking because it wasn't like they came down or they had to like take a bus or time machine or something like that but like in some way like heaven can be here not that this is heaven but it's like it's harder to put your finger on where it is um But uh, by the same token, though, we are, we can understand our lives in this world as a part of heaven in the sense that wherever Jesus is, wherever Jesus is, heaven is. Now, albeit on on this side of death, this experience is tainted by sin and death and pain and so forth. And yet, is Jesus not with us everywhere we go? When I go to the Lord's Supper, I'm, as we say in the proper preface, with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. I have people weeping at the rail often when they're communing with, with their deceased loved one, parents, spouse, whatever. Because it's what well, you can't, what's interesting, what's, what you see going on in communion is pretty. I mean, we have a pretty cool church, it's beautiful, um, but like, he's just little bread mediocre wine, like these are very physical things. We don't see heaven, and yet what you don't see is like heaven opening up, angels, all of heaven joining, us being joined together with all the saints in heaven. Uh, that's what that's what's, we're told is happening, we just don't see it. So we recognize this invisible realm. Um, letter E, what gives a human value? So our culture is saying value comes from your ability to contribute to society, and uh, your value comes from whether or not people find you valuable. So if there's a baby in your womb, for example, and you don't want it, then you can kill it. It has no value. It's not, In fact, it's talked about as just a clump of cells. Until that same person wants to have a child, then if they have a miscarriage, let's say, they'll say, I lost what? A baby. Because I since I wanted it, it became a person. You see? When I didn't want it, it was a clump of cells. When I so a a person's worth and identity is dependent upon the desire of others. Uh, and also at the end of life, it's same dynamic, but also you can add to it a person's ability to contribute, to do something, to contribute to society. So if a person is no longer able to work and bring forth, um, like contribute to society to to, to summarize everything, if I've got like one, if I've got one drug here that's gonna cure a disease and I've got this person who's, who's 90 with the disease and this person who's one with the same disease, who am I gonna give it to and why? see, this is the joy of ethics. In ethics, you have to confess on the front end, there's no, there's no clean solution here, right? You just kind of walk into it saying, ethics is, is the Christian trying to navigate a sinful world and have as little collateral damage as possible. But we have to know what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil before we make any ethical decision. So if and when you ever find yourself in the hospital making a decision about mom and dad, um, these diff- very difficult end-of-life decisions, um, I'm happy to, I'm not happy to, but certainly um, willing and um, able to help you navigate such challenging des- decisions. Unfortunately, we have to do it often in this, in this world. Um, but So you, you look at it, the point is, you have to make a decision, and we only have one. If I give it to neither, they're both going to die. So who am I going to give it to? Well, I don't know. But I, but I shouldn't say, let's give it to the one-year-old because he's got a whole life ahead of him. You don't know that. You can give it to him, and he could die in a car wreck tomorrow. You're not in charge of who lives and who dies anyway, right? So now I'm saying they're both, they're both God's creatures who I, could, who I can serve. So, I, so I'm trying to figure out, I can ask this. He might even say, you know what? I've had a nice long life, I'm ready to be with Jesus. I haven't met anybody in their 90s who has not told me that they want to be with Jesus. And they're gonna say, give it to him, this one-year-old. Or if they're both clinging to life, maybe I have to flip a coin. But I, it should never make the decision because this guy's on the way out, this guy's on the way in. On the way out of what? To where? He's not on the way out. They're on the same, are on the same direction, right? So yeah, we have like, Lord willing, as the scriptures say, 70 years, by reason of strength, 80. If God gives you 90, it's a miracle, right? That's the, that's the picture in the Bible. So like, all right, but God is the one who, God's the one who lets you both have the disease to start with. See, so we, but we don't have to be very careful about assigning a person's value based on their like how much time we think they have, we think they have left or what their, what their value seems to be to society or how much they're desired by others. Yeah, Harvey. Um, <clears throat> the same problem occurs in the legal field because they had to define who a person is as to whether they're savable or not savable. Kind of, as it relates to them. Yep, so personhood, yeah, and that's exactly the same conversation. So personhood and insurance, it comes up. Um, it comes up with, like, valuing lives with life insurance. It comes up with uh, murdering. Like, interesting, if a person, I think this happened in Colorado when I used to live there, like a guy killed his wife who was pregnant, and he, and he, was, um, he got two counts of murder. In the same state where you can, she could have, at that same point, gone and had an abortion. And it's not murder. That doesn't make any sense, right? So just thinking through, thinking through the, we we as Christians, we have clarity on these, on these things. So even in Psalm 139 says, he formed us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. And as we, um, he's given us all that we have, all that we are. And yes, on this side of heaven, often it's, it's tainted by sin. Our bodies um, are often, corruptible and corrupted. So sin breaks in and does its damage. And so we look forward to the resurrection of the body with with perfected bodies. Um, Speaking of suffering and and our bodily sufferings, um, letter F, a Christian view of suffering. If God is almighty, it's a classic atheist um, question. If God is almighty, why is there evil in the world? God created all things. We're not deists, so the deist God is the clockmaker God who created and then went on a permanent vacation. He he wound up the clock and let it go, but he's not involved in the day-to-day life of the earth or sustaining us. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures are very clear that God continues to be involved. He's involved in our life. Um, Romans 8, 28, that he's he's working through all things, working things toward good. But so logically, if God has all power, does he? Does God have all power? Who's got more power than God? Whoever has more power than God would be at that point by definition, God. So no one's more powerful than God. And does God love us? So if God has all power, does God have the ability to heal diseases. We re- yes, God works through doctors and nurses and cures and so forth, but does he also have the ability to bring about miraculous healing? Certainly, we've seen that in the scriptures. So he's got the ability to do it, and he loves me. So if he doesn't cure my cancer or my child's leukemia, God forbid, he either, what? Isn't God? Doesn't have power to heal me, or doesn't love me. That's our, that's our human logical options there. So how do I, how am I to think about suffering? And it's because I'm looking at my life and trying to determine God's love for me. I found the picture, I was trying to find the sappiest picture I could of John 3.16, Jesus hugging the world, where God's God's love for the world is seen in this emotive. Like he's hugging the world, and we we think about God is really loving. He really loves us. What do you mean by, what do you mean, God loves me? Because I'm going through a really hard time right now. This does not seem like God loves me when I look at my life. This is what's so beautiful about the best, the most well-known Bible passage in the scriptures that is, that is like most of the time wrongly translated or wrongly understood. John 3 16, for God so loved the world, right? So, what does this mean? Right. What do we typically think? If you, when you just run across this, what's the difference in for God so loved? We think, well, it could say, for God loved the world, but we wanted to emphasize that the picture isn't just Jesus high-fiving the planet, it's a straight-up hug, baby. He doesn't just love the world, he so loved the world. Is that that not how we think about that? That's That's why we use that word. For God so, God so loved the world. Because if he just loved the world, he wouldn't kill his son. Since he really, really, really loved the world, he was willing to kill his son. That's not what it's saying. For God, so this, the Greek word here is not a, it's not a modifier. It's not that he really, really loved, because there's words for that. The word here is thusly. For God, God loved the world, or you could say, in this way, God loved the world in this way. I don't know, job security for me. <laughs> It might be in other, in other translations, but yeah, I mean, so when you think about this isn't even, this, this is our, for us to use so as a modify, a, a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? To make it greater, so love the world, so love the world. It's the way we talk about, it's the way we use English, but it's not proper written English. We would say, God really loved, really. But we don't say so in that way. So the the point here is, if I've got a question about whether or not God loves me, I am not, I'm not pointed to my life for evidence of God's love. If you look to your life, you're not going to find evidence of his love. You're gonna find evidence of sin. So he has, because of his love, he has a solution to our sin, which is that he gave his only son, right? So God's love is seen on the cross, not in my life. Now, to be sure, I, I at times see God's love in my life. I can recognize that he provides all that I have and so on and so forth. However, there will be a day when I die. There will be times that I suffer. And there will be times in my human experience that I'll start to wonder, does God love me? This is Job, the entire book of Job saying, does God love me? So we're pointed to the cross as a sure and certain place where God's love is pictured for us. And then with that in mind, we're able to hold on to that promise as we face suffering and confess what Paul teaches in Romans 8, that God is working all things together for good, including this terrible situation. Because ultimately, because of the cross, even if this situation leads to death, death isn't the problem. Death, has been, death is a destroyed enemy. So now death is ultimately God simply calling me to himself. It transforms the way I see sickness and suffering and all the challenges. And we can all, I mean, all of us, I think at some point, we can look back on suf- times of trial and recognize God using it to strengthen us in some way. Or we learn from that in some way. I mean, secular fortune cookie advice would tell you that. So, so certainly that's true that we learn, from, we learn from hard times, but the biblical picture is the, it is suffering in the Christian life that causes the roots to grow deeper. Remember the parable of the sower. So it's the, when suffering came, the plant that died was the ones who, one whose roots weren't very deep. But why does a plant's roots go deep? Because it's in a place where it's not a lot of water. So it's going out reaching, and the deeper the roots are, the longer it's able to survive in times of suffering. So the Christian faces trials, to be sure. And so we're able to confess, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. So the Christian prayer is always, Lord, take away the suffering, but also, thy will be done. No matter what I'm facing, I recognize that you, you have all power, you do love me and that you're working all things out for my good. And so I'm able to commend all things as we, as we pray in Luther's morning and evening prayers. I'm able to commend all things to him, knowing that he loves me. He knows what's best for me. And I, I'm saying Thy will be done to that. Any questions on the on the father? Yes, ma'am. Well, Romans gives us a lot of the, we call it predestination, doctrine of election type uh, teaching, right? So who is those who are saved? The, the quickest way to go at th- this question is, first of all, that a Christian is able to see his suffering. So if, if I'm a Christian, if I'm able to say of Jesus, that he, is, that he is God, then I'm, I'm called and chosen, right? Right. Um, so it's the Christian who's able to look at his life and see in the suffering the promise that God is bringing it toward good and we know that because how do, what is the greatest good that God ever did for us so what's the what's the worst possible thing that we can imagine happening to ourselves well outside of spiritually bodily tortured and killed so God takes the worst possible thing we can imagine and uses it for the greatest possible good. That's the example. So for those who are called according to his purpose, those who are, those who are given faith in Jesus, we're able to see suffering as, a, as this thing that God's promising to work through for our good that we might not see or understand, but that's his promise. The non-Christian is not able to make that confession. They see suffering as only suffering because it is. He has not promised to be working through this for good. He might, but he, the promise isn't there. Good. So the, the, the small catechism on this is he is, God has created me, he's given me all that I have, everything that I enjoy in this world. Uh, he pr- continues to provide for me and sustain me. Um, but that yet, so that, that's just this physical realm. My reason, my senses, my, my which, which means he, he, is, he has gifted, a child who's really, really good at math. Have you noticed that some people are really, really good at math? And some people really, really hate math. Some people are really good with, and you say, well, they're only that way because they grew up in Naperville and their parents are both engineers. Well, who gave that kid those parents? So what we recognize is, well, yeah, okay, the the kid is a product of the environment in which he was raised, but God created the environment in which he was raised including the parents and the grandparents and so on and so forth. The, Michael Jordan's abilities, God gave him that. And we can, we can give thanks for what others have, recognizing that God has given it. It's the first article of the Creed that actually is, a, is a, one of the big pushbacks against the teaching of communism and socialism, the collective. Nothing belongs to me, nothing belongs to you, everything belongs to the collective whole and should be, and should be handed out according to the government's whims. Well, no. God has given me all that I have; it's mine. That's why there's a seventh commandment: "I shall not steal." Right? Uh, good. So, any final questions on there? So, we'll, next week we'll we'll pick up with the second article of the creed, and we'll knock out easily the second and third articles of the creed. And if you have any, if we're we I think we only have like three. Three or four classes left. So if you got more questions, what hope is wrap up the creed. We'll be kind of interweaving the Lord's the Lord's prayer in, and then we'll hit um, the Lord's supper. The the last couple classes again um, on Sunday morning uh, Bible study. I strongly encourage you guys to come to that. That's really where we do a lot of the we, we give expanded announcements. What's happening at Bethany, but then also dig in deeper into the, into the scriptures than we have time for in a 10-minute sermon. So we'll, the Lord's Supper is the plan on Sunday. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. and.